Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm a speech-language pathologist and assistant professor at California State University, Northridge. In this episode, I speak with Shirley Morgenstein. Shirley has a private practice specializing in helping persons with aphasia. Shirley first learned about aphasia while an undergraduate at New York University. She completed her master's degree at the University of Minnesota, and as she says, was privileged to have worked with Hildred Schul and her staff at the Minnesota VA Hospital. After her return to New York City, she worked at Rusk Institute with Martha Taylor Sarno, the Mount Sinai Hospital, and then the Kessler Institute of Rehabilitation in New Jersey. In 2004, she and her longtime colleague, Marilyn Sertner-Smith, formed a life participation practice in Montclair called Speaking of Aphasia. Now semi-retired, Shirley continues to see patients and is an adjunct professor at New York University. She's published two aphasia workbooks with Marilyn Sertner-Smith and maintains a blog on WordPress called Relationship and Reflection in Aphasia Therapy. To start our conversation, I asked Shirley about an observation she had written about in her blog about working with clients early in her career. Uh, Before we get started, I want to ask you, I was reading your blog and you mentioned um, when you first started that your patients would smoke (laughs) while you were doing therapy. I have to admit, I'd never had a patient smoke when I was doing therapy. Is is that true? Absolutely. Uh, but what I maybe didn't say in the blog is that I was smoking too. I was a, I was a significant smoker. And at the time, so were most of my patients. And it never occurred to me that I shouldn't smoke. So even those who didn't smoke were suffering from me. But um it was very common. It was very common in those days. And, and the suite that I shared with Marilyn Sertner-Smith, who, who is my partner in crime here, um, she smoked too. So that, and we were two offices in this suite. So we really had difficulties sometimes seeing us. But yeah, it was quite common. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I started at the VA, someone mentioned that... Uh, the audiologists would smoke in their booths while they were testing patients. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, one of the reasons I, I was, one of the many reasons I was interested in talking to you is because of your background and the mentors that you've had, Hildred Schul and Martha Taylor Sarno, both kind of giants in the physiology. Um, I, I'm curious, besides the, beyond what one could learn from them in a textbook or their other writings, uh, what, did you, what did you get from your experience working with them, either of them? Well, we should start with Dr. Shul because that's sort of where it began. I, I should either even go back a little further, and that is when um, I think a lot of speech-language pathologists are either people who began as uh, training as physicians 
or began training as writing writers. And somehow the combination of, of medicine and writing results in the medical speech language pathologist, which is exactly what happened to me. So two years into my pre-med program, I was at sea because clearly my brain is just not organized for the rigorous kinds of academic pursuits that, that medicine demands. And so I needed to find something to do. And I'd been writing all my life. And so somehow the whole issue of communication, human communication and its failures was very important to me. I mean, the writings of Chekhov and other uh, playwrights, novelists, those were the things I was drawn to. And so I went to Rusk Institute uh, to observe, I'll never forget it. And I sat behind a one-way mirror and watched this, my first individual with aphasia that I ever saw. And I knew, I knew right then that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and so when it was time to go to graduate school, I'd done my homework and found Dr. Shule at the University of Minnesota. And that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to study with her. I had already begun reading her book, which, I mean, as a writer, I think it's pretty clear that you cannot keep your persona out of your work. And neither did mm -hmm. she. Uh, her humanity is definitely uh, visible in that work. Uh, particularly in the chapters towards the rear of the book where she talks about some specific therapeutic techniques and also the psychological and emotional aspects of living with aphasia. And we're going way back now. We're going to, uh, let's see, it was 1964, I guess, when I got to the U of M. So I remember very clearly that uh, uh, this was who I wanted to study with, but because she was so renowned, I was pretty intimidated. And so when I went to her first class at the U, I, uh, I think I even dressed up for it. I was very sort of anxious that I make a good impression. And um, she came in late and she came in in what was called in my family a house dress which was not exactly what fashionistas wore in the 60s. Her, head, her, her slip was hanging about two inches below her hem. Her glasses were crooked, and there was a cigarette in her hand. And I instantly fell in love with her. You know, it was anything this woman said <laughs> was going to be okay with me. And um, she had a lot to say in that course, I think, Certainly she covered every academic and anatomical thing we needed to know, but you also got her humanity. She told stories about patients. And now that I'm teaching, I've been told that that's what most people like about my teaching is that I tell stories too. Um, yeah. So I studied with her there. I went to the clinic, her clinic at the VA hospital and saw her sitting opposite these vets and connecting in the most amazing ways. And uh, it sort of became pretty clear that there was a lot more to aphasia therapy than I had thought. So after you 
after your experience working with Hildred Schul, you went on to work with Martha Taylor Sarno. Is that right? Yes, I did. And it was uh, very directed. I had spoken to Dr. Schul about where the best place would be for me in New York, and she directed me there. And so I wrote a letter, and it took me two years, but I finally got into the the clinic there where I stayed for 16 years. So what's, what's really kind of interesting is these two women were really the best of friends, and they were also the antithesis of one another in terms of appearance, you know. Um, Dr. Sarno still to this day is, you know, immaculate in her presentation physically <laughs> and uh but both of them had this this amazing humanity the first time i ever saw martha i was again behind the window and she was uh chatting with somebody who had aphasia and i was blown away i sat there saying how how is she doing this it was like the most comfortable uh, connection. And when the person got upset, you know, she didn't hide. She didn't go away from it. She just dug in deeper. And you could see the, uh, the connection that was being made there and how that was going to help that person enormously. So she had it. I mean, they both had it. They were amazing people to learn from. A lot of SLPs don't have access to the kind of mentors that you've had. I'm curious, what do you think would have happened if you had not had access to Hildred Schuller or Martha Taylor Sarno? Do you think you still would have found your way to the same place you're at now as a clinician? It's an interesting question. Let's just say I hope I hope I would have. Yeah. Because uh, when I started out, I certainly wasn't the kind of clinician that I respect now, uh, and that was because I didn't know myself very well. I think uh, one of the lessons I hope I'm giving to my students is that in order to be a good aphasia therapist. You have to be totally knowledgeable to the extent one can with your own persona, how you operate in the world, what's important to you, what's not important to you. You have to be uh, honest and a valid communicator. Um, and uh, I, I certainly wasn't that starting out. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I was sure that uh, I was going to be making huge mistakes. And by the way, I think that's still operating in a lot of new clinicians who come into aphasia. The Mm -hmm. silence of aphasia is one of the most frightening things. And they all talk about it. Uh, And they rush to fill it, you know, with all kinds of their own verbalizations and questions and, and activities, you know, it's like, being silent with a person who has aphasia is a very powerful thing. And it takes a long time before you can feel, as I'm sure you know, comfortable, yeah. comfortable in that silence. Well, one of the themes running through your blog 
which by the way is is wonderful you're a you're a you're a great writer and and uh i kind of understand that now a little bit with you <laughs> saying that you started off as a writer in in some ways and i'm guessing that that's always been something that you've done so 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 in your blog the you, there's this theme you kind of revisiting your past and how at some point you transitioned from that clinician in the white coat who was a fixer who was concerned about maybe being the expert something like that into someone who was much more about as you described the relational aspects of treatment it sounds to me like your description of uh, Hildred Schul and, and Martha Taylor Sarno was that they were those that kind of relationship-oriented therapists. Why didn't you adopt that right away? What was it that caused you to... I mean, I know it's the prevailing kind of posture, isn't it? That trying to be the professional. Yes, I think the... the uh... The danger in any profession that relies on uh, technique is that you can get lost in the technique. And uh, for some, and I think it was true for me starting out, it was also an escape. Uh, Emotion and feeling uh, were not things I sought in those years. In fact, I think in retrospect, I think I was trying to uh, eliminate them from my life. Uh, you know, it's no, I have no problems admitting I had a tremendous number of psychosomatic issues those years, you know, because I think I really was repressing a lot. But also, there was this sort of, um, what would you call it, unofficial dictum that you didn't get too close to the people you worked with. I think doctors have it too, right? Psychologists mm-hmm. certainly have it, where, you know, that it's best for the patient to maintain the professional distance. And I really think it's a, it's a lot of bullshit, you know? It's not best yeah. for the patient. It's best for the mm-hmm. practitioner, for many, right. to stay distant. Right. Um, it's not always easy to know where the boundary is because I do, I do have boundaries. It's not as though being a relational therapist opens up all the doors and windows, but there are times when because I can connect on that level, I know that I have something to offer this person that I wouldn't otherwise. And uh, it, it, it's proven itself over the years. You know, there are lots of those moments that you can experience. I'm sure you have, too. I'm sure you have. Yeah, I mean, but like you, it took me a while. Mm-hmm. It took me a while. I, and, uh, and it's too bad that it did, too, because I think that I suffered a fair amount as a, as a clinician by trying to adopt a very professional stance, not, not saying that, you know, now I'm somehow sloppy and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, if I smoke, it's, you know, not in front of my patients. You know. <laughs> Joke, joking here. But, but that's a big burden to p- put on yourself as a clinician um, to control the setting. Right. To feel responsible for f- fixing your patients. And, of course, if you're also at the beginning of your career, well, it's kind of a double whammy. Um, but it takes a certain kind of courage, doesn't it, to open things up and to have a true partnership? Yeah, I don't, I don't think this, this work is for the weak-hearted. <laughs> you know, do you know the work of Brene Brown? No. Um, I, I don't think so. Was he, did he write about therapeutic relationship? Or maybe I'm thinking of a different Brown. Uh, Brene Brown is a woman who mm. uh, actually has a number of TED Talks up. But her focus was as a psychologist and researcher, behavioral researcher. Uh, and she started researching things like shame, vulnerability, and of course, you know, she started out wanting to maintain this incredible professional distance. This was her PhD research, and it broke her. It broke her. And so her work now is devoted to the, quote, being broken and what, what that's like. And she speaks of courage in her work also, mm. about the courage to really connect. Um, it is. It's a very. Uh, it's a. It can be dangerous in a lot of ways unless you've worked. If you have to have done your work on yourself, I think, because you certainly don't want to inflict yourself on people. <laughs> so you have yeah, to be able yeah. to uh, handle the emotionality that comes up in a. Shall I say professional way? Even though you're dealing with relationship, this is not your your lover or your mother, this is your client. Yeah. But one of the other themes going through some of your writing is this idea that, that you're on a journey as a clinician and that your clients are playing a role in your own personal development. Completely. Completely. I'll give, you an, I'll give you an example. I have a gentleman who I've been working with now for a very long time. That's one of the things I like about my work because I can do that. And um, when he first came, he was extremely businesslike. And from a very early point in time, he wanted to know his outcome. You know, what's going to be? How will I be? And that's always a difficult issue, isn't it? for us to address. We don't want to take away hope, and yet we don't want to uh, inflate it either. And the best I could do was to give him uh, a talk about the need for us to wait and be helpful in that way and, and work on time. You know, just, let's just keep going. We can keep asking that question as we go, but right now I feel it's a premature question. I don't know the answer. And after our sixth year, <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we had a conversation about 
recover it, that we always do. But it came up, this whole thing about my inability to be, quote, his word, honest with him. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you kept saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I think you knew. I think you knew that I wasn't going to be able to go back to my work. I think you knew that I was never going to be a fluent speaker, you know. And it really, uh, it really sent me into a lot of introspection about that. How many years I have been saying what I say in one way or another, and the fact that this individual was actually angry seven years later because I hadn't, quote, told him the truth. It was the only time that he felt I had been dishonest. Yeah. And it, I'm still thinking about it. I haven't come to a conclusion yet about that. So, yes, he is on his journey, but he brings me with him. You know, there's no way that I could have the work I have without acknowledging that these people are my teachers. They're helping me get somewhere, you know. I get, I get upset sometimes thinking, you know, like how much longer is going to take me? <laughs> and I don't have anybody to ask, how long does this take? You know, when do I get to be a really good <laughs> But uh, Yeah, it's always just kind of over the next hill, isn't it? Yes, you can, yes. You can you can kind of see it in the distance, yeah. And you feel it's close, mm-hmm. but it's it's always that way in a way. Yeah, you're right. Well, um, so has that changed how you talk about outcomes, or you manage you manage hope with your clients? I think it's it's made me more thoughtful. And I think what I'm looking for now is is to try and identify those people. Because again, I don't think one approach is appropriate for everybody. It definitely could have and perhaps should have been different with this one. And why I didn't feel it or see it, I don't know. And that's what I think about a lot is what what is it with this particular person? What does he or she really want from me? And sometimes can't talk about it, not because of the aphasia, but because it's not even something they can know yet. You know, it takes a long time to know what you need. Yeah. But that focus on the relational aspects of practice whether it's some of those foundation kind of components like listening, mm-hmm. kind of does put you in, a, in the space where you at least have a better chance of understanding whether or not for this particular patient you need to talk about hope in this way or that way. Exactly. And sometimes the way I need to talk about it is in direct conflict with who I am. That's a tough one, too. One of the entries on my blog, I don't know if you will recall it, is with a woman who is dying of cancer. And uh, you see her, she's this 
wonderful looking lady that just got you know her oxygen on and she used to be a volunteer for hospice Mm. so she knows a lot about hope and death and one of the things she says right out front is hope is her enemy hope takes away from what it is she needs to do now tonight she's going out to dinner with good friends and there'll be good conversation she says in good wine And I want to be ready. So I'm resting up today so I can go out and be with my friends. Hope would take that away from me. Hope would have me pushing myself today and every day, trying to be better, trying to get better. I'm not going to get better. I'm dying. So I have to be able to do what I need to do. Was really profound for me to, to listen to that because that's very much how I feel too. But that doesn't mean that the person I'm opposite feels that, you know. So what yeah. if what if I'm opposite someone who needs verbal verification of hope, and it's hard for me, you know. And it's like yeah. you know, too bad, Shirley. It's hard for you. Too bad. You. That's what that person needs, you know. Mm. So that's a learning process, too, is learning to uh, uh, defer what it is that you're feeling for the benefit of the person. Yeah. Well, one of the other interviews I did with uh, Felicity Bright, uh, a researcher in New Zealand, and uh, she did some research on hope in persons with aphasia. And one of the conclusions or points of discussion that she talked about was that hope did serve as this kind of thing that people could fall back on when there were different challenges or um, improvement wasn't happening as rapidly as they would hope or they weren't certain they were improving, etc. In other words, it was some kind of buffer that they could fall back on that would keep them on the map, keep them engaged in therapy. But on the other hand, it is a a double-edged sword because this person that you're talking about, it sounds like they're saying, well, because of this future-based thinking that hope engenders, that you're not living now. And, of course, that's going to affect quality of life and things like that. That's right. Right. But this is hardly uh, stuff that we get taught in <laughs> speech pathology graduate school, is it? No. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm actually appalled at the lack of uh, background that most students even today, you know, are having coming up. Um, it's not background in 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 what in counseling in Mm. relational work you know there's a whole body of literature out there of course it's not in our field it's in uh, social work and psychology and interestingly a lot of it is in women's studies also Mm. um but we always have to go outside the box. And that's one of the things I stress in my classes is that don't restrict yourself you know, to the curriculum. You have to really 
stray a little bit and uh, stretch yourself a little bit in order to get that kind of training. And you need that kind of training if you want to do this work, as far as I'm concerned. Right. It would have saved me a lot of time if I'd had a little help along the way in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Well, how would you, how would you describe your approach to treatment these days? I know that's a big question. I think, you know, I, uh, I try to live the LPAA model completely. So a physician that helped me during a very hard part of my life used to open up his interview with the phrase, how can I help you? And so I took it <laughs> and that's where I start. How can I help you? And I can determine pretty quickly whether this is a person who really needs intensive clinical interventions now mm. um, or one who's coming perhaps a little later down the line with a feeling of loss and uh, who needs exploration in that domain. Of course, one doesn't negate the other, you know, so they're both going on in my therapy all the time. I try my best to keep up in the literature and to be current about techniques and, um, and to use all of them if I need to. I'd like to feel comfortable being able to present to my clients what I think they need clinically for standard aphasia therapy. And I do it. You know, I do it in this room. But I also do a lot of other stuff. Right. So uh, it's just, it's pretty eclectic, but not random. I select techniques based on what I think those people want. You know, and, uh, and we move from there. Mm. Well, your practice is primarily working with persons with aphasia? Yes, it is. Um, I opted to leap out of the healthcare system. I had really become like Peter's principal, you know. I kept being promoted further and further away from my heart. Uh, unfortunately, I had a good friend, Marilyn, and uh, we just took the leap. We had no idea what was going to happen, and we both we're fortunate enough to have life partners who said, go ahead, do it. We'll take care of them. Yeah. Right. So we did it. And how can I describe? We were instantly poor and instantly happy. <laughs> mm, mm. I don't want that to be a model that everybody follows. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and to this day, the practice is not what I would call booming at all. I, I don't have a lot of clients. But the ones who come to me, I think it's, as the Yiddish term, beshert, it's fated to be there. You know, they've come and there's a reason why they're here. They need, they need what I have to offer. So um, it's almost exclusively aphasia. I do also have a client with mild traumatic brain injury. But, uh, it's almost always aphasia. Yeah. Well, that's that's quite a challenge, isn't it? Building a a, a practice like that uh, is it more difficult if you subscribe to an LPAA model? No, I don't think so, and I think that's the good news. Uh, LPAA begins 
you know, the day that you're in that person's hospital room, 24 hours after a stroke, it begins right there. Uh, that was something it took me a while to learn also, because I had this image, I think, of LPAA being a little further down the road. It's sort of like, first you did this, then you did that. It's absolutely mm -hmm. ridiculous. It begins right there with the human contact. So no way, LPAA can be anywhere in any setting using any particular structure or technique. Uh, I, quite frankly, what's hard is the financial aspect. Um, um, and I think as a result, I have to supplement what I do with other kinds of income generating activities. Um, but from the beginning, we knew that if we had those hours, those precious hours in this office, doing what we loved and growing in that way, that it would be okay. And it, and it is. Mm -hmm. But there's a sense of risk. And you've, you've talked about taking risks with your career. And one of those risks was going off and starting this practice focused on working with persons with aphasia. Was that the only risk? No, I think uh, the financial risk is a big one, but it's also the personal risk. Uh, mm -hmm. You're without protections in this kind of uh, reflective and relational practice. Uh, I'm not talking about malpractice. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking yeah. about emotional, you know, because it's a commitment. Um, and so I take that very seriously. I have my own ways of working on me and keeping myself mm -hmm. healthy emotionally because it, it's, it's filled with sadness, a lot of the work. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of laughter, too, and a lot of joy. But um, somehow in the, in the rapid in-and-out business of a hospital, clinic, it's easy to avoid that. You, know, you, don't, right. you don't really get it as much. Uh, and remember that the time that people are with me is determined by them, not me, mm. or not insurance. Mm -hmm. So I've got people with me for a very long period of time. So I actually uh, have to deal also with their deterioration over time. By the way, I think this is something that's not talked about enough is that people with aphasia grow older. Mm -hmm. And whether you want to call it dementia or not, there is, there is some decline in function without any new onset of stroke. Um, and you deal with death. More. You know, I've lost a number of the people I care for in this practice. So those are the risks. They're emotional and psychological. So you have to take care of yourself. Right. So that commitment is a commitment to these long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. And you've written about the boundaries, right? And we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but that that relationship means that you're involved with your patients in a way, in, 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 in their emotional life. You're sharing with them to some degree. How does that, I mean, patients do die, but 
How do you manage the ending of those relationships? Again, I think it's it's the way they want it managed. You know, uh, early on in my career, I was always kind of um, interested to observe that most people, when they left, did it without much difficulty. And how shall I say it? It was almost a shock that after spending all this time with people as a therapist, that they would leave and they didn't seem upset, <laughs> upset by leaving, you know? Um, so on the one hand, I think that's a good thing because it, it really says you did your job, you know? Right. And if you think about, you know, as I, I can think about my own process of being in therapy and leaving therapy, psych psychotherapy, um, we do some of the working out of the weaving and then you leave, you know, which is some of what goes on here. But again, people who leave me are ready to leave. That's because they're leaving for that reason. Right, right. Um, it's never as it was that awful garbage with insurance telling you how long you could keep someone. And right. That was really awful. So that, you, you know, you wound up having to terminate therapy way, way, way too soon. They knew that, you knew that, yet you couldn't really talk about it too much because you were employing by this company. So that's really got to change. We have to have some sort of system where people have access to relational therapy for a long period of time. I don't know. I can't give you any help as to how that would look, but I would love yeah, to see it. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm struck when I I have this experience, uh, not infrequently, where I'll see a patient in the hallway at the medical center, someone that I've haven't seen for a year or more. Uh, let's say a patient with aphasia. And I chat with them, and they're very gracious in thanking me about how I helped them and things like that. But it's always their their thank is always about um, how much I cared for them, how patient I was, um, how well I listened. Um, it it's it's it's. I can't remember ever being complimented on how technically skillful I was. <laughs> Personally, I think this is great. I think it's great to get those compliments. In but I can understand it must make you well, wonder. Well, <laughs> it, it, it does. I mean, it makes me wonder in terms of, and it's this something I've been kind of, thinking about for quite some time and that is you know when I say that I help people what do I what do I mean by help and uh, in our training you know the what we consider as help is fairly narrow right there's always some lip service given to the fact that you have to be supportive right <laughs> or that you know you take a counseling course and so you, you should be able to counsel people. But yeah, no, we don't really. Right. But we're also, yeah. 
kind of guiding or being a companion with people through some kind of process that they're going through. And sometimes we're one of the few people who hopefully has some understanding of what they're going through. You've A lot of your writing in your blog is about trying to kind of understand what it's like to have aphasia. Is, is that, uh, obviously there are limits to that. Yeah. I think, you know, my whole life, probably, I mean, the, the notion of empathy and the fact that to be empathetic, you have to have an understanding of what it's like, you know? And it's always hard. I, I, I don't really, really know what it's like to have mm-hmm. aphasia. I don't. Um, it's no, no secret that part of the reason I do what I do relates to who I am and what I experienced in my life. I am a person with a disability, among mm-hmm. other things, you know? And so living with polio offered me some ability to project perhaps a little bit about what it's like to live with aphasia. And sometimes there are stories that I can tell to people which have value because they sort of touch on a mutual experience or a, or a feeling that might come out of that experience because, because of disability. Um, I have to be careful there too, because there there really is no reason to assume that because I had polio, I have greater understanding of what you have, right. you know, or anything else. This, by the way, is one of the reasons I have. Uh, I'm a bit reticent to recommend group wholeheartedly mm. for everybody. I think I think uh, I think we ought to know very much what group is about, you know. I talk about that on the blog also. The, there are times when we, in the rush to get people to be relational, you know, with aphasia, and we, we have these aphasia groups running and we wheel people in, you know, like three weeks post-onset into this group of people with, ha- with aphasia, and it can be awful. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Have you ever experienced uh, helping someone join this group and realizing, oh my God, this is not where they belong. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I I screen groups before I will recommend them to my clients for 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 that exactly. for that reason because um there there are many ways in which a group can not be positive, can be negative in a way. Yeah. Right. And I don't think we're talking enough about that, too. Right. Right. Um, when you think about it, you know, here you have a group of individuals. The only thing that they have in common is this mm. thing called aphasia. And the expectation is that somehow that's going to be a stronger uh, element than anything else. Their politics, their religion, their hygiene. Mm. You know, it's like... There are a couple of other things that have to be considered before you you uh, you're in a right. group. But now now I've lost track of why I brought well, that I, up. Well, we well, I, we were kind of talking a little bit 
Well, you were talking about your your own um, experience with polio and, and disability and feeling that, you know, it you can maybe relate to people with aphasia or aspects of having aphasia um, through your own experience with disability. I wonder because on your blog you also talk about kind of the myth of the disabled person in a sense that this common kind of archetypal image of (laughs) the the heroic disabled person who gains back their life through effort struggle perseverance and i think if i remember correctly the your one of your comments was that's hooey <laughs> <laughs> yeah within the de- disabled community it's called inspiration uh, porn uh, it is a a a way actually for us to dismiss and distance people with disabilities to basically say you know the only way that you can be somebody who really has achieved is if you overcome. You have to overcome. You have to be better than, stronger than, you know. Uh, and it's always been a hard thing for me. And it it translate translated very early on in my work. Uh, I ran a group at Rusk years ago that had the most wonderful combination of folks. And one of my... my um, difficulties there was that this particular group had a had a kind of litany of it's getting better it's getting better i know it's getting better more time goes on mm-hmm. it's getting better <laughs> and i really struggled with this because they seemed to love it you know they're getting better Lit- litany was somehow worked into every conversation and what i really wanted to do was to blow it up I just wanted to get rid of it somehow. But, you know, that's, that's called using your, your uh, knowledge of yourself, you know, to control your behavior in the yeah. present. Uh, it's not my responsibility to do that. Uh, and so this is, this is where you have to be very careful in terms of using your own personal experience uh, in your work. You have to know the boundary, you know, how far can I go? Does this really need to be challenged or is this me talking to me, yeah. you know? But uh, if anyone's interested in a better discussion of inst- inspiration porn, if they just Google it, you'll get a lot of disabled activists talking about it and giving you the the clear definition and why well, it is. What do you think? Or, what do you think is a more realistic or a more helpful story than the the superhero who's disabled for me it's the everyday person Uh, years ago i participated in a um it's nothing to do with aphasia but disability Uh, a friend of mine a very talented psychologist who herself had cerebral palsy was running a mentor group for women people with disabilities. They were really girls. They were young, adolescents. 
And uh, meetings were held. There were speakers who were asked to come, but also, you know, it would be a lot of group discussions. And uh, in these, you know, she asked me to be a mentor at one point. And I said, you know, I'm not sure I can do it because this whole issue of holding oneself up with one's achievements as something that people should strive for was a little uncomfortable. Uh, I attended one meeting. Uh, there's a woman writer named Ann Finger, who is disabled, and she is from California. And she came to talk about her experience as being a disabled writer. And it just so happened that she had given birth to a baby about, I don't know, baby was about five months old. And so she came to the meeting with the baby, you know, and part of the time she was nursing the baby. Well, these women, these young women who were in their teens were completely blown away, not by Ann Finger, the writer, but by Ann Finger, mm. the mother. Um, and throughout the course of this, you know, when the baby got fussy, a young woman would come up and say, can I hold him for a while? Interestingly, she would just hand that baby off. It's like this person had a disability that affected their arms, but... Anne behaved like, hey, it's your disability. You should know whether you can hold my baby or not. Mm -hmm. It's not up to me. You know? Just <laughs> hand over this baby. You know? And it was being handed all around the room, and people were ooing and eyeing. And I said to my friend after the meeting, I said, you know, this is what people are looking for, a way of a gentle life that does not differ very much from what everybody else wants. At this age, you know, at 18 or 17, you're thinking of, I want to be in a relationship. I want to have a baby. You know, I want to be able to handle that baby. So it's not, you know, I want to be the fastest disabled skier down Mount Snow. This is really what we have to offer, I think, is that you had a life that was, quote, normal. It was your life. Aphasia came and robbed you of that. How can we help you get back your life? Right. You know? So that's, that's a lot of what my thinking yeah. is these days. But so it's not, a, it's not an attempt to go back to some pre-morbid status. No. 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 It's again, I'm, I think in my mind, even as I say it, I'm thinking relation. Yeah. You know? It's like you, ha you had a husband or a lover or children, you know, or friends. Where are they? You know, are they part of your life? Or if they're not, is there a way for us to help you find new ones? But there's an element of acceptance there. That's a, that's a hard word, you know? I don't know what acceptance is. What is well, acceptance? <clears throat> it's not only a hard word, it's a hard thing, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I suppose to be with something the way it is. Um, I'm not sure anybody can do that. I, well, I don't know. I don't know. But um, clearly in, in the case of aphasia, our clients are going to have aphasia for the rest of their life. And if we're not either explicitly or implicitly pushing this hero's journey, how do we... How do we foster, again, I don't know if there's a better word for acceptance, 
but uh, willingness, maybe it's a related word, willingness to work with what's here right now. I think that's, I think that's a better way to frame it. Yeah. Uh, because I don't, I don't think acceptance, acceptance implies that you've reached the end point. Yeah. And I don't think there is an end point. Right. I think people with aphasia can live, you know, 24 days out of the 30 in a month feeling pretty good about life and themselves. And then there'll be the 25th day where something happens. I don't know what it is, a telephone call from a rude person or, or a fall or, you know, something that, damn it, you just don't accept. This is... I can't accept this. This can't be in my life. You know? And the rage wells up and the anger and the disappointment. But does that mean you don't really accept it? Perhaps not. You know? What needs to be accepted is that it's uh, like everything else. It's a process. The word really is not an endpoint. Well, so as a, as a therapist... And I, and I still struggle with this, I think. And that is because in my experience, so much of what I think is the help and the value I offer is through something as simple as listening. Is Let me tell you something, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> Your listening is not simple. Yeah. You know, you're probably one of the few individuals who does it right. It's not simple. It's very, very hard to be a, a good listener. Well, I, I don't know. You haven't spoken to my wife, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the what I was getting at was, you know, this baggage that I maybe I'm carrying, right? Where um, I feel like I should be fixing their communication. I should be really devoted towards improving their communication. As, a, as opposed to, for lack of a better term, everything that we could put under the category of counseling. Mm -hmm. And if you say that you're involved with relational practice, or if you, I mean, I almost get the sense that you define yourself or label yourself as a relational therapist. Right, and I say I'm working toward it. Yeah, but that 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 but talking about it that way kind of puts that at the head of the at at the head of the class, right? Or makes it mm -hmm. somehow the the most important aspect of what you're doing, right? As opposed to I think you know what our training kind of the direction it takes us is that that the relationship part is a small part, right? It's, it's a small but necessary part, but the bulk of what we do is the fixing. Correct. Right. Right. So what do we do with that? <laughs> well, I don't know because, you know, when I get a new client, I mean, I, I, I feel like they have expectations and those expectations are not necessarily that they're going, that we're going to be in, uh, engaged in some relational practice. You know, I feel like their, their, their expectations are that 
to one degree or another, I'm going to fix them. So if that's what they want from you, you know, if they come to you and they say, you know, fix me, what are you going to do? Well, I know I can't fix them. So right away, that's part of the question. The answer is partly there. Um, Mm -hmm. And clearly they don't. They rarely come right out and say. Of course. course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But as I said earlier, at the time of evaluation or first meeting, you know, it's pretty clear what those people who really just want to get to work, you know, do the business. And so I do the business. Right. But if they hang in there with me long enough, there's going to be more going on. Well, you know, I I'm working on me with them until they're able to work. And that's I think that's a big part of it, isn't it? It's just time. I think so. Right. That um, time will reshape some of their expectations and bring other things to the forefront that were maybe more in the background. Correct. Yeah. But uh, your teachings, your students, now you've got graduate students. I do. And so, as I do, and there is this feeling that you've got all of this knowledge that you're supposed to try and impart, and it's about understanding disorders, diagnostics, treatments, you know, the, this traditional stuff, and carving out time to talk about aspects of relational practice or, right. or even painting that picture for them of what a relational practice might look like. Correct. For students who, you know, 99% of them are going into a situation where they're working with institutions. Right. And, you know, they're dealing with third-party payers, et cetera, et cetera. How do you be a relational therapist under those constraints? Or is it not possible? No, I do believe it's possible. Uh You know, uh, I think I tell the story also on my blog of uh, very early in my career. You know, I I was at a hospital, huge hospital, lots of people saw somebody at bedside for for evaluation and um, had my appointment set up downstairs. I had to get ready, you know, so I left the room, I came downstairs, and we're all jammed into this elevator, and all of a sudden, a hand from the outside pulls open the doors, and it's the husband of this individual who says, I need to talk to you. And my first response is to say, I have an appointment right now, but I will come back. And he said nothing. He just stood there with his hands on the open door. And so I came off the elevator. You know, if, unless you're, you're completely off base, you will be forced to be a relational therapist. <laughs> In acute care, you will be a relational therapist. That person needed something from me, and I had to find it. What does he want and how can I give it to him? That's in the end all it is. 
I'm not engaged in psychotherapy with my patients. I'm engaged in being another human being who relates to them as a human being, not as a patient or a patient's husband. But don't you think that, you know, it's, it's not hard under the the institutional constraints, et cetera, productivity requirements, all of the influences. It's, it's not hard to behave in a way that's not in harmony with being a relational therapist, right? This kind of matter-of-fact, detached ap- approach. And, and so... It, it seems like, you know, one needs to have a very conscious philosophy about one's purpose and one's mission. And, and that it's something that, that as therapists we have to ref, reflect on frequently. I mean, and I love reading your blog because I'm reading your, your reflections kind of in public. You're, you're reflecting in public for us. That's the sense that I get. Right. So I don't think you can do relational therapy without this process of reflection. Sure. You know, it's a, it, they go hand in hand. Right. But uh, I understand what you're saying. Yes, I do believe that, that we need to help people coming into the field to understand the complexity of what it is they're entering. You know, the minute they open that door, things are not as clear cut. And yes, there are all these pressures on you, but you have to be able to uh, manage them, you know? If you walk into a room uh, with your copies of the Boston Diagnostic Aphasia exam, you know, on your clipboard, and your your mandate is to do this evaluation today, Mm -hmm. because you basically only have X number of days, you have to write this up, it has to get into the computer, blah, blah, blah. But in about five seconds, you determine that this is not going to be the day for this to happen with this person. You know? And so you sit your butt down and you enter into the relationship and try to figure out what they need. And by golly, you're doing an evaluation before you know it. You're learning a lot about this person's communication skills, difficulties. You know? You're not going to have scores to report, but if you're worth anything as a therapist, you're going to be able to exit that room knowing a little bit more about, you know, their aphasia that you can write in a bloody eval. I think we have to get rid of the definitions of of what it is we're supposed to do that are coming from the wrong places. Such as? Uh, You know, such as the policy and procedure manual. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> forget it forget it right. you know well what does uh, what does the first visit that you have with a client now what's that first visit look like um uh, it's usually uh, about two hours long mm-hmm. and in that time uh, i begin by speaking with the person with aphasia and whoever they've designated to come with Uh, those who have nobody to come with are rare. There's usually somebody, if if a friend or a a spouse or a partner. And we just talk first about 
the response to how can I help you today? You know, uh, and I get a pretty clear picture fairly quickly about the what's the word the uh, whether or not these two people are on the same page. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, sometimes not. You know, sometimes one is surprised to hear what the other one's version of what it is I can do to help is. You know. Um, so having done that, um, I explained that I'm going to probably be doing some testing. Uh, I do, based on what it is they're asking me, I do different kinds of tests. I don't have a battery that I use. Particularly, I try to use tests that relate to that individual's desires for therapy. So for example, if they tell me that they're really upset about reading, I'll do you know, a pretty in-depth assessment of reading skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also use the QCL, do you know the tool from ASHA, which is a quality of life measure. Uh, I spend time alone with that person with aphasia trying to find out more about him or her and what it is that's going on with them. I then send them out of the room or out for a cup of coffee and I bring in the other person alone. And we talk for a while and I try to ascertain what's going on there. And then we all get together again and I tell them very honestly what I think is going on, both clinically and relationally. I then tell them what I think I have to offer, if anything, or if not, and I send them home to think about it and let me know if they think that's something they want to do. When it comes to the goal setting, how do you, how do you approach that? Uh, again, you know, there's the person that's saying, you know, I can't read. I, uh, I can read a menu in a restaurant, but I want to sit down. I always used to read the times. I want to be able to read the times. Mm. So they're essentially giving me the area and I've assessed by my reading cast sort of what level they're at. And so my goals are pretty clear cut there in terms of helping with reading, no? Yeah, but uh, it's not that uncommon, is it, to get to get clients who don't provide you with those clear activities. <laughs> you know that that Well during the course during the course of evaluation though, you can pretty much find out what it is that's bothering them linguistically. Yeah, you know, yeah. how they feel about it. Is this something really important to you or not? I mean, you're doing a lot of questions about that. Yeah. So, and even like, you know, if you had to set out to accomplish something, well, what do you think you might want to do? I mean, just a lot of conversation about that. Mm-hmm. Coming back to the, to your, to your blog, why did you decide to write it? I think it was, com- I was compelled to write it. Yeah. There was so much that was coming up for me in my sessions and I'm, I needed to document it for myself. Mm-hmm. And um, that's usually where it starts. I just start writing. And then it occurred to me that other people might be interested in my journey too. So, Well, Shirley, uh, thank you very much for uh, spending time to, to, to talk with me and to be on this podcast. Um, where can we find your writing these days? Um, 
I guess the blog, which is uh, Relationship and Reflection in Aphasia. It's on WordPress. Okay. Um, I guess I do, I do write a bit on Twitter under S-O-A-L-L-C, which is speaking of aphasia, LLC, things about aphasia there. Um, I'm in the process of trying to put together a collection of my aphasia haiku. I don't know if you ever saw any of them in the early parts of us getting to know each other. But. I've seen some of the poetry and maybe some of the haiku. Okay. Yeah. So I'd like to put that together, I think, at some point. I don't know. I sort of self-publish maybe a little book mm. of aphasia haiku. But I think that's a lot of writing for people to read. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's, it's, uh, it's a, you're a wonderful writer, and uh, I encourage everybody to, to, to check out your blog. I... Uh, I I learned some things from reading your blog, and I also got some confirmation about things that I feel and think too as a clinician. So it's been was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. To learn more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, please visit www.ancds.org.